We are all apprentices in a craft where no one ever becomes a master. The great Ernest Hemingway. Welcome back to another episode of the If I Could podcast, a show that gives you an inside view at what steps a person took to start living their dream. I'm your host, Ahmad Amin. In today's episode, we will meet Kamran Pasha, a once rising star in the field of law who chose to pursue his true passion for writing. His work has been featured across a variety of Hollywood movies and TV shows, and he has also written two fantastic books, Mother of the Believers and Shadow of the Swords. You can find Kamran on Instagram at KamranPasha72. So how did Kamran go from the courtroom to the writer's room? Let's find out. Kamran, thank you so much for getting on the show, man. I'm really, really excited about having you uh, be a guest and having our listeners learn about your journey. Oh, well, I'm very honored that you would have me on here. And, you know, we met a few years ago and I told you a little bit of the story and I hope I can, uh, I can interest people with some of the unusual journey I've had coming into Hollywood. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my podcast is really about people that have these dreams and passion and they just haven't taken that first step. And your your story is actually really, really interesting. But before we get into that impetus that drove you to start pursuing writing mm-hmm. as an actual career, tell us a little bit about what you were like growing up. Were you always into arts and entertainment? Were you into writing? What were you like as a kid? No, I was always a writer. I was always been a storyteller. You know, I uh, I, le- I immigrated from Pakistan when I was three years old back in 1976, and you know, and I learned English from watching uh, American cartoons and and watching you know sitcoms and things like that. So sure. so uh, so th- that I've always been fascinated by storytelling. Uh, you know, when I later in my life told my mother that I was going to leave behind a prosperous career as a lawyer yeah. to go to Hollywood and become a screenwriter and filmmaker. And she said to me, well, I, I always knew you were going to do that in your life because when we were when you were a little child, I would be making dinner in the kitchen and you would come up and you would tell me stories, whole <laughs> uh, stories of movies that you made up in your mind with characters. And there'd be a beginning, middle and end. And I'd be totally fascinated because the movie made sense even as a child. So this yeah. was always sort of who I was. I think a lot of people who are artists always have that. They may not know how to express it as they get older, but it's there. Yeah. And that's that's a part of it that I want to touch. So far, the guests that I've spoken to, they all have this like inner uh, innate ability to be creative, but then they wind up going to school or pursuing something. So did you have a similar journey? Were you in high school? Were you into a theater acting, writing? And then how did you wind up saying, I'm going to pursue law school? Well, you know, I, I was always a natural writer. I think I wrote my very first sort of short story it was a murder mystery i used to love agatha christie as a kid yeah. and so i wrote my own agatha christie story back and i published it in the school newspaper when in fifth grade so i've always been a writer and a storyteller and you know i went to a very science and technical oriented high school uh in manhattan called stuyvesant high school which was you know it's a very sort of big math science school and i've never been interested in math or science uh yeah. and you know, which is in our culture, that's a blasphemy, it's a, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the biggest sin in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I, and, you know, and I got through that school and I did okay there, but those classes that I did great in were the creative writing classes. And so I was always instinctively that uh, in college, I actually majored in religion. 
uh, which start a lot of people like, you know, I went to Dartmouth, which is a very good school. And people like, yeah. didn't expect me to come and say I was going to major in religion. Well, what are you going to do with that with your life? But uh, my goal had been to go to law school because I was the only thing I could think of doing practically because I knew I, I could write and I could communicate. And so I thought I'm no interest in these technical science fields that all of our community is going into, but maybe I could use my skills in that. And I, I, in, in college, I was planning to do sort of, you know, political science, government, those kinds of topics that you, that you think would get you into law school. Yeah. And I was taking religion classes on the side and I was just getting A's in those religion classes. It was really easy for me. And I was in love with it. But I said, I'm just, if I want to get good grades for law school, I'm just going to focus on the, on, the, on the topic that's giving me easy A's, right? Yeah. And so I, I became a religion major and I was in love with it. And you know, I've always been interested in religion, but the aspect of religion that draws me is the storytelling. You know, yeah. the, these are the greatest stories of all time. Yeah. You know, the stories of the Bible and the Quran, they've changed human history. They're, right. you know, and they influence people. People will sacrifice their lives for these stories that they're inspired by, right? And so that's true storytelling. And, and that always drew me. Um, you know, but I, I didn't see that as an actual profession. I could never imagine anyone would want to pay me money to write, you know, novels or movies or anything like that. And so I, I, after law, you know, the fun thing that happened to me, the great thing that happened to me, which was painful at the time was, so I, so I finished up at Dartmouth and my senior year, I applied to all these big law schools and I got rejected by every single one, wow. even my safety school. I wow. mean, nothing. I, maybe I got a bad recommendation. Maybe I screwed up something on the essays. Who knows? Yeah. But I couldn't believe it. I'm, I'm going to an Ivy League school. I've got good grades. I've got good LSATs and I got rejected everywhere. And I was in severe shock. I had no plan. I had no backup plan. That was the plan, right? And that was God's great blessing to me because then I had to scramble and figure out what I was going to do. And I had worked in the college newspaper. And so while I was thinking of, I'll, I'll reapply to law school next year, let me get some work experience. I went and became a journalist. I ended up becoming a journalist in New York for about three years professionally. Wow. I was very successful at that. You met a lot of, you know, interviewed people, you know, Benizir Bhutto, Shimon Perez, all these people. And it was, and then even though I was loving it, I felt still compelled to go back to my plan. And I went yeah. back to law school and I went to Cornell for law school and actually went back to Dartmouth for business school. So I had a JD MBA and I combined those two schools. And regrettably, I was bored out of my mind. I did well <laughs> in law school, but now that I had professionally been writing, even as a journalist, it was in my blood. Yeah. And uh, and so I started, I wrote my first screenplay while I was actually in an accounting class in graduate school, just because I was bored. And that screenplay would uh, become the screenplay that got me my first agent and launched my professional career in Hollywood uh, right after I graduated. And yeah. so this was a very, it was not a linear path, but it was a path that I felt God was guiding me on. Yeah. So a lot to digest. We're, we're going to break it up into a couple of steps. You graduated, sure. you're, you know, it didn't, didn't work out in law school the first time. And then you yeah. said, all right, let me try to pursue um, writing and then got into the field of journalism. How did that whole experience go? Did you did you think journalism was the right route? Did you just apply on a whim and then got in? You're like, oh, let me let me see how this goes. And then um, follow up to that is what did you like about it? And then what still left you feeling unfulfilled? Okay, well, it, it wasn't the plan. I had been working, like I said, in 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 college. I had been like a hobby, I had been in the college newspaper and I started literally the, the day I, I arrived on campus, I was trying to figure out hobbies and things to do. And I thought, oh, let's try to join the college newspaper. And I ended up discovering I was very good at it and mm -hmm. ended up becoming one of the editors of the newspaper at the end, you know, at the end of my time there. And, uh, but I never thought of doing that professionally. Again, my focus was laser focused on law school because I thought that's the profession, right? Yeah. Uh, and that was my limited vision of reality at the time. And so God gave me this incredible blessing by denying that to me. Yep. And at the time, I, I was really upset. I was like, you know, I have no plan. Well, why? I felt like God was against me. The world was against <laughs> me, right? Sure. And it was actually, it was actually him showing me 
uh, that I was being too small, that I, I had many more possibilities. And he and here I was, I felt humiliated. All my friends were going to work for Goldman Sachs and, or were in graduate school. And, and here I was, I didn't have anything at the end of school. And I felt ashamed and humiliated. And I was depressed for a while. And then I said, okay, I have to survive. I have to struggle through this. And I have to, mm-hmm. if I'm going to reapply to law school, what am I going to, what am I going to do? Spend the next rest of the year, the next year in my mother's house, depressed. Yeah. And so I started looking for a job. And the only skills that I thought I had based on my experience was the fact that I had been a college journalist and there were journalism jobs available. There were reporting jobs available in New York City, right? And so I had four years of clippings from the, the work I did. And yeah, Dartmouth is a prestigious school. And so a lot of famous people would come. And so I would have these interviews with famous people who spoke at the college that yeah. were actually quite, you know, these were actually significant writing samples. If you're talking to somebody who's like a presidential candidate or whatever, right? Yeah. That's something that you can submit as a writing sample to a journalism job. For sure. And uh, and so, and I got, went through lots of rejections and, and then I ended up breaking through. There was a major uh, financial publisher called Institutional Investor, which uh, is sort of one of the big Wall Street magazines and publishers. And they hired me. Uh, I was six months of getting rejected, and then they hired me. And I had no background in finance at all. I hadn't taken a single economics class. Uh, but in my desperate effort to get work and trying, you know, I was looking for journalism jobs. And I saw most of the journalism jobs were in the financial field at the time. You know, most of them were at places like Bloomberg and other financial publishers and, and news wires. So I said, I have to be able to talk at these interviews. So I actually went and I went to the library and I got a book on financial derivatives and options and read it. Right. Wow. I knew nothing about it, but that's, I said, I was going <laughs> to interviews where I had no knowledge. Yeah. People started asking me, so what do you, so what do you know about finance? And I wouldn't have an answer. And so I wouldn't get the job, yeah. right? Because they needed people. Yes, they could see, I could, I could write, but yeah. they needed people who could understand the concepts of wall street. And, yeah. and so I trained myself uh, and I went and I learned. And so that I finally was able in one of my, in my last interview, after many rejections, I was actually able to make a compelling case of how, uh, of why I understood the financial markets. Uh, at least from reading a few books, sure. and uh, and that got me the job. And so I was working at institutional investor, and I was covering at the time the foreign exchange market, you know, the currency markets, the dollar, the yen, all of that. And what that did was, it actually allowed me to segue easily into things that I was interested in, which was international affairs, because. You know, you if if the prime minister of Japan is visiting New York City and me going to the 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 you know the New York Stock Exchange, and I'm working for a big financial publisher, I could have a chance to interview him, right? And here's a chance now because he you know whatever he says is going to impact the the dollar yen market, which is what I'm covering, right? And and then I could also talk about the things that I'm interested in, which is the politics of Japan yeah. and international relations. And so that's how I ended up using that position to do all this international political reporting that interested me. And yeah. here I'm 21 years old and suddenly I'm meeting heads of state and yeah. it, not just at a college, but at a prestigious uh, you know, publisher that they, they're trying to get their message across. So suddenly they're interested in talking to you. So it, it was a really wonderful experience. I had a great time. Yeah. And, you know, the the event that actually broke it for me, because I had then, I went ahead with my plan and I applied to law schools and I got, I got into USC, which is a great law school, but I was really loving my work as a journalist. And so something said, don't go right now. So I deferred. And a year later, the, I, I had, you know, I was so enjoying my time as a journalist. I thought maybe this is my profession yeah. that I actually let it go. Even though I deferred, I got in, I declined to go. Right. And then an event happened that broke my heart, which is how the world is. Uh, you know, I was up for a job at a major newswire 
I had been doing a lot. I was based in New York, but I had done a lot of work in D.C. for my job. I was going to D.C. regularly, and I was up for a job at this major newswire, and uh, and I thought I had the job, and I was going to uh, relocate to D.C. and do the political stuff that I was interested in. And then, you know, this is the, how the world is. At the interview, the uh, the interviewer, you know, the the editor said something to me. He said, well, I see you've done a lot of coverage of the Muslim world, of Pakistan and whatever. And, you know, I just want to know, are you really objective about the Islamic world? I mean, as a Muslim, do you feel you can be covered this objectively? Because I'm concerned about that. And that was such an offensive question to me, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm a journalist and mm-hmm. my job, at least in theory, was rejected. I, I think we can argue that modern journalism is no longer that, but at least I valued that. I certainly had my points of view, but I made sure other points of view were expressed when I interviewed people. And so I, and I took it very offensively that he brought up that I was a Muslim and, you know, being a Muslim, certainly in the nineties in journalism was fringe. Uh, it's still fringe today, although there's a lot more sort of woke people pretending they like us Muslims in today. In those days, it was pretty open. He didn't, he was concerned that I would bring my religion to the coverage and that I would somehow change it, particularly coverage of the Middle East, which is always an issue for people in the journalism. And so I was so heartbroken by that kind of open bigotry and that insulting thing that I decided to leave journalism and then go back. And I to law, I reapplied to law school and I I went to Cornell Uh, and I arrived there. And within the first day, I was like, I made a mistake. Yeah. Within the first day, because I loved my job. I loved writing. I loved the profession. I was really good at it. And I was rising rapidly in it. But I was so angry at this feeling of discrimination that I sort of reacted from an emotional place and did something. And the moment, and Cornell's a wonderful law school, and I actually did very well there. I was ended up being, you know, a top student there. And I was unhappy because I was no longer in the, in the, yeah in the in the 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 thick of it out there you know meeting congressmen and heads of state and doing this and talking to the chairman of the federal reserve and all that and suddenly i'm i'm sitting in a in a in a in a little campus going over legal books and i was like what have i done to my life uh and i kept thinking i'm i'm going to go back to i'm just going to finish this law degree and then i'm i'm actually not going to go become a lawyer i'm going to go back into journalism maybe cover the supreme court something like that but i don't want to do this anymore and you know, I had gotten into this program where the JD MBA. So I had these two degrees, right? Yeah. And it just made it even worse because at least law school to me was intellectually interesting, but I wasn't the right guy for business school. I mean, I, I was looking at the balance sheets. I couldn't make anything balanced. <laughs> and, and it was just, I was like, what am I doing here? I mean, I can write about finance, but the actual day-to-day practice of it bored the crap out of me. Yeah. And that's, and so that's what happened there. Now I was like, all right, what do I do now? And so I started writing the script just yeah. as a creative outlet. So that's the long story there of the journey behind yeah. that. But that's how I got to the moment that I'm currently at, which is now yeah. I'm I'm I never expected, which is that that I'm a filmmaker professionally. Sure. And the 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 story that you told, and and I remember cracking up at it because you were like uh, telling us, "Hey, look, I, you know, I'm a JD MBA. I'm taking these classes, and while I'm in lecture, I'm not even my heart's not even in what the professor's saying. I started writing my script, and all I could focus on was I got to get the script done." Yeah. So what, what, um, how did you, how did you know, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, okay, let me give the script a shot. And then how did you pick the subject matter? What kind of drove you? Was there just get it out there creatively? Was there some kind of contest you were trying to enter? What were you trying to like, what was the, well, the contest was, was my ego. A friend of mine in law school, uh, yeah. was, a. Uh, he was a student at law school and he had written a children's movie and he had written, I didn't, he had written a children's script, like a, like a, a fun feature movie, like Goonies. Right. Yeah. And he was telling me, and I'm getting all this attention in, in, in Hollywood. People, people are, you know, agents are looking at this. And I was like, 
he can do that. I can do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so I uh, just purely out of like this competitive spirit, I decided to, to write my own script and I love horror movies. I still love horror movies. And at the time the scream franchise was very big, you know? And so I wrote a teen horror movie uh, about, you know, and it, it was just a teen horror movie. It was, you know, the, the beautiful girl runs up the stairs while the guy in the mask chases her with a knife. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. And so that kind of thing. And, uh, and I wrote it uh, just in this accounting class. Cause I already given up. I couldn't, ma- I couldn't make that accounting class work. I was like, you know, and the good thing about business school, certainly at a place like, you know, you know, uh, you know, Tuck, which is the Dartmouth Business School, is that you don't really fail out. You'll get a low grade, but nobody fails out. I mean, and so I was like, I'm just going to take my what's called a low pass, which is basically, yeah, you didn't, you know, it's it's not a great score, but whatever. And so, you know, and I just basically gave up in that class and started writing this script to pass the time. And then that's how it, it happened. Yeah. And I'm gonna I'm gonna have a follow up question, but before I do that, quick '80s horror movie question. Yes. Who is your favorite uh, uh, villain? Is it Mike Myers, Freddy, or Jason? Mike Myers for two reasons. Yeah. One is he's actually a Muslim creation. Mustafa Khan, the great <laughs> yeah. Syrian filmmaker, created Michael Myers on Halloween, right? Okay. And so he was the first major um, Muslim filmmaker in Hollywood. And, you know, and he created this great, brilliant, iconic franchise. And so that's a personal identity thing. But on a deeper level, the reason I love the character of Mike Myers and, you know, of uh, the Halloween franchise is that it is really, really creepy in, in the sense that it's you know it's scary in a different way than than freddy who is this you know demonic ghost that's haunting in your dreams and and jason who's this invincible monstrous you know creature right yeah. uh whereas with with uh with michael myers the it is his body language that's the most frightening he doesn't chase anyone freddy and uh and jason do jump scares they jump out at you right and and scare you Whereas he just, he's like a zombie. He just slowly walks towards you <laughs> because he knows that he's going to kill you. So you. there's no rush. Yeah. And, you know, and the original Halloween is absolutely terrifying because you yeah. don't actually see any blood. It's all implied. Yeah. And it's just that creepy sense of this e- force of evil that is co- utterly confident that it's going to win. Yeah. That's why Mike Myers is so brilliant to me. Yeah. And, you know, and it, you know the first movie was great. The second movie was solid. The third movie has nothing to do with Mike Myers. And then the franchise sort of went off. It's the fringe. Halloween H2O is actually one of my favorite horror movies. It resurrected the feeling of Michael Myers yeah. and the creepiness of the original film. You know, I saw the most recent Halloween film. I was a little disappointed, even though I was, Jamie Lee Curtis was back and all that, because it didn't understand, in my opinion, what Mike Myers is. Because in, in the newest Halloween uh, film, the newest sequel that they've done, he just walks around killing people randomly. Yeah. And that's not Michael Myers. He's very targeted. Yeah. You know, and, you know, he he doesn't just walk into a house, kill somebody, walk out, which is what he was doing in that movie. He was just walking, killing random people for no reason. <laughs> and that wasn't Michael Myers. Right. Michael Myers is very he, he he's a hunter. He focuses yeah. on you. He stands outside your house for several nights looking yeah. at you. And that's who he that's why he's a scary predator. And yeah. so I didn't yeah. think that movie understood it. Yeah. And your mom was absolutely right. You are a storyteller because I have been watching Michael Myers since God knows when, but I didn't really uh, think about it at the level you just explained it. So you've definitely found the right craft, I would say. Well, you know, I'm, I'm still here doing it. I'm <laughs> Thank God. So here, there you are in law school, right? You have this buddy who's, who's talking about his success yeah. uh, in writing, writing a script. Did you immediately search out a contest or did you just start writing? How did you figure out, okay, let me, let me gun for this milestone. How am I going to do it? 
well, you know, I had the script finished yeah. and I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I didn't have any contacts. I'm a random boxing Muslim guy. Now I'm in New Hampshire of all places, right? I mean, what am I, I going to do? I mean, it's in graduate school in New Hampshire. Yeah. And I just got a book on agents, on agents in Hollywood. I didn't even know that those were people that were actually paid to be in the book, right? And so, you know, so they, it was almost like advertising. So yeah. I just started sending them what's called query letters. I sent them emails that they, of, here's, my name's Kamran Pasha. I'm, you know, I, this is my background. I used to be a journalist. I'm doing this. And I've written this horror movie. And here's the idea of it. Would you like to read it? And I only sent out six of those. Because the first five I sent out, I immediately got rejection. I didn't even get responses to the email. I got rejection letters slash postcards. Like they sent in the mail. It was, one of them was like a postcard. It was like, dear sir slash madam. We do not accept su- submissions from unsolicited submissions from people we don't know. And after you know four or five of those, I got really disheartened. And the sixth one I had sent out, and I didn't hear from the guy, and I just forgot about it. And I said basically, okay, obviously this isn't for me, and I'm just going to focus on being a lawyer, which I was doing. I was working at a big New York law firm, and it was fine, but again, I wasn't very fulfilled. And then the way God works is on Christmas Day of that year, of two, yeah. uh, Christmas Day of 1999, the year I was a Muslim on Christmas Day, yeah. I get a call from that sixth agent that I sent an email to. I never even heard from him, right? Or he had actually emailed, said, send me the script. And so I sent the script and I never heard from him, right? Mm. And uh, and on Christmas Day, he called me, said, I finally got around to reading your script. And I got to say, this is the horror script. This is the uh, the slasher script. He's like, this is an incredible horror movie. I mean, this is really well done. And I'd like to represent you. And I was like, what do you mean represent me? So suddenly I had an agent and I didn't even, I couldn't even imagine that. Yeah. And then he put me in touch with a client of his uh, who was a director. And, you know, we developed something together and we ended up selling it to Paramount. And suddenly I got this huge check uh, for a script that I had written just in a few days, you know, for this director. Uh, and I just, I had been paid for it. I just wrote it out of excitement that I'm talking to a real director and he's interested in potentially helping me. So in a few days, I wrote this entire script and gave it to him. And, and he couldn't believe that I'd written a script in a few days. And he read it, goes, this is actually really good. And, you know, and he ended up, we ended up selling it to Paramount and I got a second project to Paramount. And uh, and that's how I got into the Writers Guild. And I'm still working as a lawyer 80 hours a week. I'm like, I'm writing these scripts on weekends. Wow. So I'm like, all right, maybe I can do this. Maybe and that's I when I had that conversation with my mother saying, you know, I've just gotten in the Writers Guild. I've yeah. sold two scripts. I've made, suddenly made a lot of money. Yeah. And I'm like, for just a few days with the work, maybe this is my destiny. And she told me, I told you you're going to do this. And she blessed me, said, go go off and do this, right? Yeah. And uh, then I moved to LA in April 2001 and then discovered selling the third script was not as easy. <laughs> you know, Allah does be, do beginner's luck. God does beginner's luck sure. to pull you into something. Did you, um, did, the, did those movies ever get made? And what were the names of those the, those scripts at the end? Uh, they were actually TV scripts um, for a TV show at the time that Paramount had. There was a channel, UPN, which merged into the now the CW. Yep. UPN and WB were the were channels in the early 2000s that were there that are, now, that are now what we call the CW. And UPN had a TV show called uh, Seven Days, which was about a... Uh, which is about a, a, a government agent who had a time machine that let's say something horrific like September 11th happens, the government can send you back in time seven days to prevent those guys from getting on the airplanes, that kind of thing, right? So I'd written, the director I was talking to was a director on the show and I loved his show. So I, in excitement of talking to him, I actually wrote out an episode of his show, uh, which was set in Jerusalem, where basically someone blows up the Dome of the Rock and sets a war between the Muslim world and Israel. And it's, and then they send back in time to prevent that from ever happening. And I submitted that to him. And one of the rules I did not know was that you're not supposed to write a sample script of the show that you're interested in mm. for two reasons. One is that it creates legal problems. You know, 
for the show because they're like, you know, what if they already have a Dome of the Rock episode in development? Then you claim that they stole the idea and you sue them, right? Number one. And number two, no writers on a show like to believe that anyone outside of them, certainly some random civilian, can write their show better than them. Yeah. So it's and so I didn't know that that was the rule. And that's one of the lessons for any of your listeners is when you don't know the rules, it's actually better because then you break them without knowing it. Yeah. So I, I, I wrote this script and he was like, oh, you wrote a script of our show? Well, you know, it can't. And I literally wrote it in two days. I talked to him on Friday. I worked all weekend on the script. And on Monday, I gave him the script. And he couldn't believe I'd written it over the weekend. And so he read it. He goes, this is better than anything we got in production. And he gave it to his boss. <laughs> yeah. And the boss says, this is better than anything we've got. And so the wow. boss bought the script. He then flew me out to, to LA. Again, I could only go there for a weekend because I'm working at a law firm. Sure, and sure. so I flew out for a weekend, met the, met, the, met the executive producer of the show, Chris Crow is his name. And I pitched him some other ideas. He said, that's a really good idea. And I wrote, an, uh, and again, in my excitement, I went off and wrote another script just to show him as a writing sample. And he looked at it and goes, this is better than we got. <laughs> and so, wow. they, so they bought that one too. Wow. They, they, they never produced the, uh, the first one. I guess the, the, the Dome of the Rock one was too controversial. But the second one about a child who has telekinetic powers and is, and is dangerous, uh, sort of like a fire starter type child that they have to stop without hurting the child, uh, that they bought and they, they, they produced it. Uh, ultimately, it was rewritten by his staff, who I don't think really appreciated me coming in and <laughs> writing their show. Sure. And it was rewritten and became a very different episode. But I got my first credit. I mean, it was the the writers of the the staff writers of the show got, were credited for the script, but I was on the screen credited as story by Kamran Pasha, right? And so I'm sitting there and watching for the first time my name on television. Yeah, that's a that, and, what, and that, what, what does that feel like. Um, it it was actually one of the great exalting moments of my life. I've had a few. Um, you know, that was one of these great moments. I sat down with my family and we watched it and, uh, and seeing my name come across, you know, the screen on, on network television, you know, story by Kamran Pasha. It's just a card that flashes and it's gone. <laughs> but I felt like I was flying. Oh, the, yeah. the, the, the closest experience I've ever had to that, that feeling of absolute exaltation and feeling of victory was when I got a call from my literary agent many years later that I'd sold my first novel to Simon and Schuster. Right. And that it was going to be that they were going to give me a two book deal. And I had been struggling with that to get a publisher for five years on that novel. And then when I got that phone call, it was the same kind of feeling of like a magical breakthrough. Yeah. So, and we're going to get into that because I love each of the, each of the books you wrote. Um, So you moved in April, you get to LA Right. You got all this momentum. And then what's that journey like? Well, I mean, initially there was a lot of excitement because now I'm I'm cranky because I've discovered I was a very fast writer and I could create scripts really quickly. Yeah. You know, at the time I was being told, well, nobody can write scripts in a weekend except Aaron Sorkin, you know, and David E. Kelly. Right. And all, I can do it. Right. And I've sold scripts. I've now sold two scripts that I've written in a weekend. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and gotten, and uh, so I discovered I could do it. So I then, you know, my new agent moved out to L.A. He's like, all right. You know, we need some more writing samples from you. You're, you're a lawyer. So, you know, there, there's shows like, you know, Law and Order and all these shows. So you should write a legal sample that we can use. So I wrote, there was that TV show, The Practice, the David E. Kelly show. So I wrote a writing sample of that, a legal a drama. And this was, I wrote this back in April of 2001 when I moved to LA. And it was just a writing sample that they were sending to all the legal dramas. And it was getting me meetings. And the writing sample was about, uh, you know, a Muslim who's being held under those secret evidence laws that were in effect before the Patriot Act. Back in the 90s under Clinton, they established all these secret evidence laws that were being used against Muslims that someone could, your neighbor could accuse you of being a terrorist. And then you would be essentially tried, but you would not be allowed to see the evidence. That was the precursor to the Patriot Act, right? 
And it was really, and there was a lot of civil liberties groups trying to fight that at the time, that this was being used to basically, there was, there was an instance where a guy had, a Muslim guy was having an affair with somebody's wife and the guy, the other guy basically called the FBI and said, this guy's a terrorist, just mm-hmm. so he could break the guy up from his wife. Mm-hmm. And the guy was put in solitary confinement and was never shown the evidence he was a terrorist, right? And it was all this domestic drama instead. Sure. So there were some really bad, horrific things. I wrote a script about that and uh, that got me a lot of meetings. And the most important meeting was I actually got a meeting with Law and & Order. And Law & Order in 2001 was planning to do a miniseries about, uh, about a terrorist attack, a Muslim terrorist attack on New York City. It was going to be like a biological attack or whatever. But they were going to bring together the different Law & Order shows, Law & Order, Special Victims Unit, uh, Criminal Intent, and have a miniseries where all the different characters from those shows would interact and try to you know, solve this crime and capture these evil Muslim terrorists. And so Law and Order was doing this miniseries and I met with them and they're like, well, you know, this script you've written about this guy who's being held on the secret evidence. We're looking at some of those issues in this miniseries. Maybe you're a right fit for this. And if we hire you to be a writer on the miniseries, if it goes well, you, we might potentially hire you for Law and Order. So mm. I was like, oh my God. So six months ago, I was a lawyer in, you know, in or nine months ago, I was a lawyer in New York or whatever. And now suddenly I'm in front of Law and Order, the number one show on the planet. And I was like, wow, so this is the 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 incredible gift of God, like destiny. Right. It's like Genghis Khan. I'm going to conquer everything. Right. And so and then then God taught me one of many, many lessons that were going to be learned on the journey because it went right back to that moment in uh, in in college where. I thought the world was going to go in a certain way and it didn't. And I was very upset about it, but it was part of the plan. So what happened is the meeting with the big law and order producers to potentially join the miniseries was set for the week of September 11, 2001. Hmm. So you can imagine on the morning of September 11th, I get a phone call saying that they're canceling our meeting. Hmm. Yeah. That afternoon, they NBC announced that it was canceling this miniseries, which it had already announced it was going to do this miniseries. And it was like, you know, a terror attack on New York is now too sensitive to do as a miniseries. And so that miniseries was canceled. And suddenly I went from being this guy that was getting a lot of attention to becoming persona non grata in a second. Sure. And suddenly being a Muslim, everyone in Hollywood was like, I don't know if I want to meet this Muslim guy. I don't know if all these Muslims are going to be kicked out of this country. We're about to go to war with Iraq and Afghanistan. And suddenly I went from being the feet of the town yeah. to nobody wanted to take a meeting with me. Yeah. Instantly. Instantly. Yeah. And so you're you're human just like all of us, right? You have this prestigious degree to fall back on. Yeah. At that point in time, were there thoughts in your head like maybe I should go back to to law or how did you weather that storm and stick stick to what you were passionate about? Well, the problem is this. Uh is that once you leave the law for a bit, it's hard to go back into it unless you were just purely do private practice, set up your own shingle, right? Um, you know, I'd left the law now for a year. Mm. And uh, and so suddenly major law firms would be like, well, you've left this to become a writer. Why would we trust you to stay with us? Sure. So I knew that really wasn't a possibility. I mean, if I put the effort in, I'm sure I would have gotten a job somewhere, sure. but sure. I didn't want to anymore. Now I, had the, now I had the taste for this, right? And I loved it. I loved it even more than journalism. And I love journalism. So yeah. I was like, this is this is what I'm meant to do. And I've discovered that God had given me an unusual ability that I could write scripts that were film ready within two days. And again, people are telling me that only Aaron Sorkin, the great genius, can do that. <laughs> only David E. Kelly can do that. I'm here, this random box and Muslim guy. I'm like, but I can do that. Yeah. And and I made that like a matter of pride. Like every script I, in the first early years of my career, I would write every script within three or four days just to prove I could do it. Yeah. And I would consistently sell them. And I was like, well, I can do this. And yeah, you're telling yeah. me only David E. Kelly? Clearly, 
there's somebody else you're not noticing, right? Mm -hmm. And so now that I had gotten the taste of this and I had discovered that this was easy for me, yeah, and this was a special talent that God had given me, I couldn't let it go. And so I spent the next uh, three years, almost no, four years, 2001, yeah, it was almost four years. It was three, three and a half years. We're struggling. I had agents, you know, they were trying to get me gigs. Uh, you know, I, uh, I was actually able to get my first TV gig on that channel, UPN, which was doing a Twilight Zone remake with Forrest Whitaker. So that was my first uh, professional job as a staff writer on a television show. So that got me through a year. And that was, and then after that, though, after Twilight Zone was canceled, I didn't work again in television for several more years. And during that time, I survived purely by, you know, getting small gigs, writing small, you know, small movies that never got made, but would might pay me like $20,000 to just write the script and it never got made and never moved forward. But that $20,000 would get me through a few months and it'd be broke again. And another small project would come and it would get me through another three months. Mm. And I did that for three years of month to month, wow. project to project, yeah. you know, none of it getting made, getting no attention. Yeah. And my yeah. ego is severely damaged because yeah. I got a lot of attention sure. initially. And I discovered that I was very, very good at this. And suddenly I'm like, why can't I get work when I have an ability that is beyond other people's yeah. at the top and I can't even get work at the bottom. Yeah. And, and then that changed when the show sleeper cell happened in 2005. And was that just another submission of a script and they liked it and you got back, you got, got you back in the driver's seat or how did that come along? Come up? Well, Supercell, I didn't create Supercell. I was a writer on it. It was created by Ethan Reef and Cyrus Voris who were successful screenwriters and they had created the show, uh, which was about a Muslim FBI agent who infiltrates Al Qaeda and and sort of defeats this terrorist attack and at the time 24 is the dominant show in everyone in the world and this was in some ways uh, uh, a counter 24 this was you know that was a very comic booky show of jack bauer you know running around defeating these terrorists you know and it wasn't a realistic understanding of what's happening in the war on terror and by now it's 2004 2005 so we're deep in it we're stuck in iraq you know it's a bad situation and uh, there's terrorist attacks happening and so Sleeper Cell was meant to be the show that was the first realistic portrayal of what's really happening in Al-Qaeda and the war on terror. And that script that had initially gotten me all that attention about, you know, the practice writing sample with the Muslim guy who's being held on uh, under these secret evidence rules. My agent submitted that script to uh, to Ethan and Cyrus and to Showtime, and they read the script and goes, this guy really understands these issues about, you know, um, Muslims who are accused of terror and all that. So they, they interviewed me like, wait a minute, you're actually a Muslim? You're actually a practicing Muslim? They never, they had never really met one, right? <laughs> you know? uh, Hollywood, uh, it's changed a little bit in the 20 years that I've been there. But at the time, there was really myself, and I would later discover there was another African-American uh, Muslim woman who was very successful, but she didn't really talk about her religion publicly. She just did kept it private, did her work. But I was very public about who I was. And so they had never really met a Muslim before. And they said, oh, an actual practicing Muslim on a show with a Muslim lead, I think that might be a good idea. And they hired me to be a writer on the show. The second season, I became a co-producer. And, and that show got a bunch of Golden Globe nominations and Emmy nominations. The New York Times wrote about it. The LA Times wrote about it. So suddenly, I was after several years of humiliation, sure. I was suddenly getting all this attention again, yeah. well, of course, which 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 my ego then inflated, which wasn't necessarily <laughs> a good thing because my whole career has been ego inflates and gets punctured. Yeah. <laughs> it happens again multiple times. <laughs> Ebbs and flows, man. Ebbs and flows. That's life. That's life. And then how did you then now you're in the sleeper cell? Yeah. Did you how did you transition into, hey, I want to actually start writing some novels? And how did you get into that? Well, the novel came from I right after September 11th, yeah. I had actually written a, a movie script on the Crusades because I wanted to, 
tell the story of how this isn't, you know, it's not evil Muslims versus good Jews and Christians that's the problem. It's religious fanaticism that's the problem. So I wanted to tell a story of another time when the Muslims were sort of the progressive, you know, uh, civilization of the world, the uh, and. Uh, the Europeans, the Christians, were sort of these barbarians who were religious fanatics, and they came and they invaded, you know, killed a lot of innocent people. And so that was a reversal of sort of the news that we're seeing, in, in, you know, the day where the Muslim fanatics are invading the Western world, right? right? And I wrote that script, and again, it got me a lot of attention. But uh, Ridley Scott, uh, the, shortly after I wrote my script, Ridley Scott announced he was going to do his own Crusades movie. And so, you know, at the time, I did not have the mojo to go up against Mr. Ridley Scott, so nobody really wanted to take that on. Uh, especially because Ridley Scott's movie was what Hollywood can tolerate, which is a Christian hero and a Muslim you know, adversary, right? right, right. Uh, but this was told from Salahuddin, the Muslim king's point of view. So this was reversed where the Muslims were the hero, right? And, uh, you know, and so, so that issue uh, didn't get that uh, script, you know, a, a lot of attention. But so I was frustrated because it, it is one of my best scripts. I had written it in five days. Again, my great pride that I'd written this epic <laughs> movie in five days, right? Yeah. And it was good. It was getting a lot of attention, but nobody was buying it. Yeah. So I then, because I was stubborn, I said, I'm going to put this out as a novel. And I turned that script into a novel. I literally took the entire screenplay, took every scene and made every scene of the movie a chapter. So I already had the dialogue of the, chap of the, of the, the chapter. And then I would write the prose around it and create the craft the novel. And I, I, I wrote, took this, movie script and turned it into a 500 page novel uh and then i tried to get you know i had never done a novel before so i tried to get it sold and uh you know i my literary agent tried at the time and you know no no one really bought into it at the time and so i did everything i could i would run around i would go to writers conferences i would go you know i would go anywhere i could to get in front of somebody that would take my novel seriously and none of it led anywhere and so i'd written that novel in 2000 and uh three yeah and i spent four years shopping it around shopping around and then finally in 2007 we got it in front of simon and schuster and an editor fell in love with the novel and she bought it and she gave me a two-book deal and then you know i was stunned i was that moment of that incredible call that i was getting after all these years of rejection yeah. to get that call i was flying right and yeah. then i flew out to new york to meet with the editor and she gave me the two-book deal and uh, she said, what other ideas do you have for your second book? And I said, well, I've always wanted to no write a novel about Aisha, the wife of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, right? I've always wanted to tell novels because she's such an incredibly complex, interesting character. And I wanted, and, you know, she she shatters all the stereotypes you have of Muslim women as, you know, because she's this powerful feminist woman, you know, who's a leader, even a military commander. And the editor, Simon Schuster, she was so fascinated by the pitch. She said, that's great. You know what? We'll do that first. We'll put that book out first. I said, <laughs> I haven't written it. That's just an idea. Yeah. Like, here's your book deal. You got you got nine months go. Wow. And I, wrote, I wrote the novel. I wrote that. Uh, and the novel ended up being, the initial draft of the novel ended up being 900 pages. And I wrote that in those nine months while I'm still working and doing other things, right? Yeah. And so, um, and so I wrote that entire novel. And then I handed in. They're like, 900 pages is a little bit big. <laughs> it's a little bit big. <laughs> and and so I had to cut it down. I lost about two, 300 pages uh, in order to get it published. And then the final version ended up being of 650 or so pages, right? Uh, but yeah, and so that... That novel came out in 2010, and then the very first novel I wrote, so that novel about Aisha is called Mother of the Believers, uh, and then the novel that I'd written about the Crusades and Salahuddin is called Shadow of the Swords, and that would then be published uh, a year later. So 2009 was uh, Mother of the Believers, and 2010 uh, was Shadow of the Swords, and those books, alhamdulillah, they're still out there, people are still reading them.
Yeah. And it, for those that haven't read these books, I've read both. They are phenomenal. I'm not just saying that because Kamran's on the- on I'll the take table. it. Thank you. <laughs> both. It's so well written and just a really good good uh, mix of making people be more human and showing the, the human side of it. Because I think we kind of make it seem like everyone uh, in the past, especially- around to religious figures have this perfect life and you know they at the end of the day they are human figures and they there's imperfections there and i think there's a beauty to that so you well, did a phenomenal well, job and i would recommend it sorry go ahead you were going to say something no no, no. I, look I, I don't want to interrupt you in recommending my book please everyone read it no well <laughs> the importance of why those books you know we're we muslims are going through this very unusual period in history where our self-esteem as a civilization is very low and as a result the muslims are very defensive and you know, they have forgotten the the glories of their own history. And so there's two ways to react to it. Either Muslims look back, you know, they ignore the history of their own glorious leadership and advancement of the world, or they idolize it. They look back at the figures of those times and make them into like, you know, plastic saints who weren't really, you know, that you can't criticize or talk about. And they were not that. And they were complex human beings just like us with flaws. And so telling these novels and presenting the incredible accomplishments of the Muslims, both in the during the days of the birth of Islam and then a few hundred years later during the Crusades, and then showing these people that we Muslims have iconized in recent years. Like you can't criticize Salahuddin. You can't, I mean, he's such a holy figure, but he was a military leader. Yeah. And he did, he, I mean, you know, and he's a man. And so I tried to show him as a man because he, his honor and chivalry is known in history. The Crusaders wrote about it. But let's see what what his flaws could be sure. and make those that chivalry and that honor shine brighter, right? Yeah. And that's what I've tried to do in those books. And and to show Muslims, you know, we can, if these people who are human, who have, who can make mistakes and flaws can transform the whole planet, then, you know, maybe we flawed Muslims can do the same today. Yeah. So Kamran, you have this gift of um, meeting these really tight deadlines and, and writing phenomenal, uh, f- phenomenal, just uh, writing in, in that, in that short period. I need to ask you a favor. Can yes. you please call George R. R. Martin and tell him to, good God, please finish book six and seven of the Game of Thrones, which is going on like eight years of him. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that he's going to do it. I don't know. That he's gonna do it. <laughs> you know, he's uh, I think he's, you know, he's exhausted. Yeah. And I think the experience on the show has taken his mojo away. I don't think he liked where the show went. Yeah, uh, and I agree. I didn't like where the show went. Yeah, no <laughs> one liked where the show went. Nobody yeah. And so uh, it's, you know, the funny thing is this, the the creator of the show, David Benioff, and I went to college together. He didn't know me because, you know, David and I went to Dartmouth together. He was a year ahead of me, but we were there. And uh, and he didn't know me because David was in the cool crowd. And now oh. David's in the cool crowd in Hollywood. He still doesn't know me. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is this, I, I, I reached out to him once on Facebook and I said, hey, David, you know, we went to college together. We didn't really know each other. But, you know, I'm glad to see your success. I love your show. I, he's also a novelist. And I'm a novelist. And he responded back to me. This was at the height of the success of the show before some of the later controversy. And, and David Benioff said, he responded to me by email saying, hey, that's great. And wonderful to see a fellow artist from Dartmouth. And, uh, you know, I'm right now filming in Morocco. But, ne- you know, next time uh, I'm, I'm in L.A. or New York where we cross bads, let's have coffee. And that's never quite happened. Yeah. But, uh, but it was nice. He's a very gracious guy. Yeah. Yeah. Though, I don't know if you've read the books. The books are phenomenal. And I would I would love for him to finish book six and seven, but I I, I agree I don't I don't know if he's gonna if he's gonna get around to it. Yeah, so you know we we've got his earlier books, and uh, I think it may be a situation that you know his estate in a hundred years might complete these books. Yeah, so but I don't know that they'll pull it off. You know the Margaret Mitchell estate. Uh, 
you know, 80 years later did a did their own version of uh of or 50 years later did their own a sequel to Gone with the Wind called Scarlet. And I'm a huge fan of Gone with the Wind, both as a novel and as a movie. And the regrettably the the sequel was not good. And that's sort of you don't want to sully something that's brilliant by coming up with uh, you know, this post product afterwards. Yeah. No, that that completely makes sense. And I guess as a follow-up to the challenges of being a writer. What is the hardest part about your craft? What are some preconceived notions you had versus when you were pursuing it full-time? Well, the hardest part, I think every writer would understand this. The hardest part, the hardest part is, uh, is procrastination. Mm-hmm. No writer wants to write. Writing is a terrifying and lonely experience. You're sitting there by yourself, often for hours, alone in a room, not talking to anybody, living in your imagination. And it's a terrifying, isolating experience. Uh, very, I don't know any writer who's actually a professional writer that loves the process of writing. People love the end product when it's good. They're proud of it, right? And I am as well. But the, that's the hardest part. And so because the process is so terrifying, we procrastinate and we push ourselves to the end. You know, I told you I had nine months to write uh, the Mother of the Believers novel, right? Uh, I didn't. I procrastinated for the first three months. I was like, I only have nine months to do this. And after three <laughs> months, I'm like, I'll start it tomorrow, inshallah, God willing, tomorrow. And yeah, finally, yeah. about six months into it, I was like, hey, man. I don't have any time left. Yeah. I mean, the, the structure that I'd written out for this thing was going to be eight, 900 pages. I'm like, I'm a fast writer, but I don't know that I can pull that off. And, you know, I just got this book deal. If I don't get it in by deadline, I might lose my, my book deal. Yeah. So then yeah. the panic set in when I, and literally I was writing the novel till the night before it was due. Wow. Because I procrastinated yeah. and I just created enough time that if I locked myself in for four to five hours a day, for six months and had no human contact, yeah. I would pull this off. And the night before it was due, I wrote the end. And it was one of the most greatest feelings of my life. I literally, after I emailed it to the to the, the publisher, uh, I lay down on my sofa and I thought, you know, I fulfilled my life's purpose. I, am I going to be awake tomorrow? Am I going to die in my sleep? I mean, it was this moment of feeling of completion, right? Yeah. No, that's, and when I woke up and I'm still here, struggling you're the way. Still here. You're still going strong. So, now I want to kind of shift towards uh, more of reflection and guidance, especially towards listeners that, you know, are, are listening to your story and they're like, you know what, this is, this is great. I, I want to start exploring this um, and seeing if I can make a career out of this. Um, what's your advice for anyone that wants to pursue this uh, or has thought about pursuing it, but for whatever reason, couldn't get over that first step? What's, what's, what's something that they can hang on to or try to do that would well, set them off? I would recommend they read a book that is an inspiration to artists and particularly writers throughout the world. Uh, it is a book called The uh, The War of Art, not The Art of War by Sun Tzu, but The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Uh, Stephen Pressfield wrote this incredible book, which is this motivational book of why we need to create and why we need to write and why we have to overcome this procrastination, this resistance I'm talking about. And he talks about the reason why we why we resist creating. And it's and he actually thinks of it in a mystical terms. He thinks it's a, almost a as a as a he really speaks of it as a as a mystical satanic evil force that wants to prevent us from creating, and that the divine force within us has to assert itself and create. And the book changed my life. It got me off my butt to read you know, to do it. And it's an incredibly easy book to read because every chapter is just one page long. So chapter one, one page. Chapter two, one page. It's really not even a page. It's a paragraph. But in that paragraph is such incredible wisdom of why yeah. you have to write. Yeah. That if you just read one page, you, you feel energized to get up and do it. Yeah. And the greatest gift of God was that when, when 
I got my book deal when Mother of the Believers was finished. My first novel for publication was ready, and Simon and Schuster was sending it out to try to get author endorsements. They sent it to Stephen Pressfield. They didn't even know that the man had inspired me to write. Wow. They sent it to Stephen Pressfield. That's he cool. said he read it. And he gave me an endorsement, which is on the cover, right? That's cool, man. And then I discovered he lived down the block from me in Santa Monica. And I took him out for, for lunch. I couldn't believe this man who changed my life lived down the block from me That's and had endorsed my novel. And yeah. so uh, and then he done then he endorsed my second novel as well. And yeah. so this is, you know, that what you have to do is you have to get over the fear that you're yeah. not good enough and the fear of creation. That's every artist faces that, every artist has to get over it. That's a cool story, man. Um, really uplifting. And then I guess following along in that in that uh, in that note, what's the biggest mistake you see someone new to the industry making? You know, I mean, there's so many mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to think what the what the biggest one is. I mean, I'll I'll speak about currently in this moment of the current cultural moment yeah. we're in. The current cultural moment we're in is uh, a lot of people, a lot of young writers in particular. Do not understand that making enemies on social media is not going to help your career. <laughs> That's very specific advice to this moment, but it's real. You know, I'm on social media. I'm not. I'm not shy about my political views, and they're not always mainstream. Uh, and you know, I'm also aware of the appropriate time for that. And like when I'm up for a job, I shut down all my social media. I don't want nobody going in there, you know, arguing with me about my politics or my religious beliefs or stuff like that, right? And people lose jobs now because they alienate, they get into art. I see, I see young writers insulting major writers on social media and, sure. you know, because, oh, I, I didn't like what you said. I thought you were sexist. You were this, you were trans this or whatever. And they're just alienating people that can hire them. Yeah, That's not the way. I mean, we are in a culture right now of self-destruction through social yeah. media. Yeah. And so I, that's the that's the primary thing is, you know, that's a new phenomenon that is that I've never seen before. That is a new obstacle to advancing artists, which is we, we ruin ourselves by becoming jerks on social media. Yeah. And, I, and I remind myself of that as someone who's a very loud mouth person on social media. <laughs> yeah, no filter, man. Right. You can just type whatever and forget about it. And repercussions are there later on. Yeah. Yeah. But but the repercussions will come. Oh, and, yeah. You know, uh, there was a young woman who recently uh, she didn't have a good experience on a TV show she worked on and she was let go and she decided to write a social media piece attacking the writer she had worked with uh, by name and uh, and essentially calling them uh, bigots for this, that and that reason. And I don't know what her experience was. And maybe she really did have, I mean, Hollywood is full of bigotry. I've experienced it. So I don't deny the truth of her experience. I also know that that email, that that Twitter post that she made was forwarded to me by very well-known writers who are quite leftist and liberal and sympathize with her who said, she just insulted my good friend. I'm never going to hire her. Wow. I mean, that was forwarded all over town. Yeah. So her career is done. Yeah. But she got a few hundred social media likes. So, yeah. so be it. Think wisely. Yeah. But again, right now, people, the illusion of social media likes are, yeah. uh, you know, as, as meaning anything. And, and as we've seen on social media, you're, you're the hero one day or the villain the next day. It doesn't mean yeah. anything. Yeah. People liking you will attack you the next day when you don't fit in the line of something. Yeah. And in your journey, or especially in today's times, are there support groups or any type of um, professional groups, I guess? I mean, there are. I mean, there's lots of writers groups. I'm I'm a lone wolf by nature. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I have always been that. I like to do things my own way. I've generally found that when I don't, when I, for me, when I end up trying to go go along and with what everyone else is doing, 
nobody benefits from that because whatever I have to offer is usually I'm the fringe crazy person on the edge who's hopefully pushing things forward. And whenever, whenever you know, you sort of get along with everyone else, you you leave, you lose that edge that is required to challenge things. And not every writer is going to be that person, but that's the person that I am. I'm here to be a catalyst and not to fit in. And so uh, I tend to 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 do my own thing. The one thing that I do, and I think it's important for all writers because I did not receive this, is you should look for a mentor. You should look for someone more successful than you. Make offer them something, even if it's let me just help you out with your work. Can I be your assistant? Whatever. And how can I? And then get them to mentor you and teach you. The idea of apprenticeship is very central, uh, both for learning your craft and also in Hollywood to getting you the connections you need to advance your career. I was not given that. Everything I've done, I when I came here, I didn't have any mentors. I was pretty much this crazy Muslim guy who was <laughs> incredibly fast writer and was a little threatening to a lot of people, right? And so nobody wanted to mentor me. And uh, I had to do it all by myself. And my career, I've had, alhamdulillah, great successes. And I've had a lot of failures. And I've missed a lot of opportunities just because I don't have a lot of people in my corner because I never had that mentorship. So what I try to do is that uh, I try to provide that. I've actually mentored half a dozen young Muslim writers uh, who have approached me over the last 10 years. And, uh, and by God's grace, they're all doing well. Every single one of the young people that I mentored is working on a TV show right now. Every single one of them. It blows me away. I'm like, you know, I just finished a TV show and I'm looking for my next gig and these kids are working. <laughs> so I'm like, so the great thing is like, hey man, are you, can you hire your mentor now as you're riding <laughs> on? <laughs> so, yeah. so that's the thing, yeah. That's awesome, man. And uh, before we end, I always like yeah. to, I always like to ask these three questions to the guests. So yes, um, what advice would you give yourself? What advice would you give your past self? advice I would give my past self. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I would tell that person, don't be so egocentrical. You know, I was, when I quickly discovered my abilities that God had given me and th- that they were unusually high, like I said, I, mean, I, I wrote to, I mean, my first novel, the Crusades novel was actually written in six weeks and you've read it. It's good. Right? I mean, I wrote the whole novel in six weeks. People spend yeah. years on novels. I read, I wrote, Mother of the Believers in six months. And people don't believe that when they read it. They're like, you must have spent a decade on this. So I discovered I was given this unusual ability and an unusual speed, which is really not existing in this town. And that built up my ego tremendously. It made me a bit of a jerk at times. Mm. Uh, it made me, you know, egocentrical and rude to people at times. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm still that person in many ways, but I think I've been tempered a little bit by a lot of failure and humiliation of, about you know rubbing people the wrong way with my big ego. And people that could have been allies ended up becoming people that didn't want to deal with me. So I would tell that person that you should be secure in your genius without having to flaunt it. Mm. And, uh, and maybe I still need to learn that lesson. Yeah, that's, um, that's really powerful, man. Same question, but what advice would you give your present self? What advice would I give my present self? My, my advice for my present self would be, to get off your ass and, and start creating more stuff. You know, you can't live on your laurels. I've had great successes and uh, they're, t- you know, and I've been doing this now for 20 years and it's exhausting. You know, I have written a lot of things that people tell me, oh, it's a work of genius. I've had major directors like Ang Lee interested in my work, but the it never comes together, right? And then you get disheartened after a while. You're like, okay, I keep, I keep getting close to this Oscar level. So I've worked with Oliver Stone. You know, I've worked with high level people, but you know, I'm not an Oscar no, famous 
writer like David Benioff, people know who he is, right? And uh, and I've worked on, I've been on the, in this game for almost ten years longer than David did, and I've I've come very close to that that gold ring many times, uh, and then it has been taken away from me again. God humbling me, so that I would have to say to the person I am today is, you know, just get up and do it again, and don't chase that gold ring because God's going to give it or not going to give it. You know, you know, that's not your control. You know, we look at Vincent van Gogh. He was the greatest artist of his generation and he died having essentially failed. Right. And then 10 years after his death, his paintings are worth millions of dollars. Today, they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. He didn't get to see that in his lifetime. So you as an artist are not guaranteed success in your lifetime, mm. uh, especially if you are ahead of the curve. You know, van Gogh was ahead of the curve because he he saw where art was going uh, decades from his time. And he and he created that movement. And in some ways, I've been ahead of the curve. Like the very first movie that I sold was about the love story of the Taj Mahal. I sold that to Warner Brothers. And to this day, it has not yet, got, yet been made. But that's tw- that was 17, 18 years ago. And I knew that India was going to become a major part of Hollywood a decade before anyone else did. And I was writing for that, right? Mm-hmm. And so being ahead of the curve is painful. But that's your job. I mean, if you're that person, that's your job. And that's the person, that's what I would remind myself today. Get up and do your job. Yeah. Don't worry about the outcome. That's beyond your control. All right. Same question, but what advice would you give your, your future self? My future self would be go on the beach and relax. <laughs> relax. This journey wasn't worth the craziness you put yourself through. So go and relax. Enjoy your, enjoy your, the, the time ahead of you. Yeah. That's, uh, that's good advice, man. I really, really enjoyed uh, learning about your journey. Um, I love your passion. You're, you're a great guy. Um, I really hope our, our listeners get as much out of it as I definitely have. I appreciate your time, Karman, so much. And thanks for being on the show. It means a lot to me. Thank you very much for having me on. I love how much passion is in Karman's voice when he describes his journey. You could feel his energy. You could feel his sense of enthusiasm throughout the entire conversation. He described his successes, but also his challenges, yet his self-belief and confidence never wavered. He turned a dream into reality by never giving up. If you haven't done so yet, I highly recommend you check out Kamran's work. Again, you can find him on Instagram at KamranPasha72. Join me in the next episode where you will get to know Michael Hahn. You will learn about his journey from a financial professional to a lifestyle coach, motivational speaker, and author. Until then, for Kamran, this is Ahmad. If I could podcast, signing off.